thank you for being game, Amy Cuddy, for this next installment of my podcast, which is in the process of a name change. Okay. So this is Amal Sarva, founder of Notel and founder of this podcast, which we're going to talk about the name of. And I have the great privilege of hanging with Amy Cuddy today because I just bumped into her at a conference at Founders Forum here in New York. Would you like to say hi? Hi. How do you introduce yourself, the legend and myth that you are? You are, uh, who are you? What are you? It depends on the day. Mm. Sometimes I'm a music lover, sometimes Uh a social psychologist. I can't decide if I'm an author or a psychologist or a professor or Mm -hmm. anything. So I I, I haven't settled on anything. Mm -hmm. And known to many, probably on the two very powerful memes that have, uh, I think they've crossed the entire world. The first one is about asserting identity, you know, the... The, the role of the physical posture and how it can change how you feel and others perceive you. This is this power pose business. And then the second one is about what happens on the internet, is it? I mean, that's what's happening. That's what I'm doing now. So I wouldn't hmm. say that, it, that many people know about that. But yeah, I'm, I'm writing this book called Bullies, Bystanders, and Brave Hearts. Hmm. It's really about uh, mobbing, sort of adult bullying and adult mobbing, hmm. which on the internet is worse than other places. But, hmm. um, but it happens off the internet as well. And it's... it's, it's I would say at least as common as bullying among kids, but adults are just much better at it. We're much oh. more sophisticated, oh. and we're much less likely to act out. So oh. when a bully is called out, um, kids are kind of like, sometimes the kids will go, oh, okay. I had a bully once as a kid, maybe more than once, but there's one really formative experience I had uh, in the fifth grade uh, there were a little cabal of kids who were not so nice to me and one day I was walking out of school with another friend or two and it wasn't like a truly dangerous violent situation but as boys do sort of confronted each other coming out of the exit and the three of us and the three of them this guy had something to say and he made some comment about my appearance and somehow just off the tip of my tongue I basically just called him fat I think it wasn't nice and it's hard to give that as advice to people but it deflated him just on that moment it was over and never again, yeah. Yeah. So that kids. kids can break, can somehow break the cycle much more easily hmm. than adults. But adults dig in and try to take them all high ground, mm-hmm. and they won't give that up, right? So, mm. so, and being called bully as an adult is like the worst thing. Mm. So, so they do not want to Ah, uh, and we face this now. I mean, this guy who was just shouting in the Supreme Court hearings. Uh, I, it brings me to tears unless they can I, I found that so upsetting. I, we were in Helsinki and watching it from the and I just, you know, I couldn't sleep. Mm. I, I just found it deeply, deeply disturbing. Mm. And it, 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 it gates open for, for me and for so many women. It was, it was a, absolutely, it was a moment for me when I said, I am done with this. I'm done being a with man. I'm done. This is... It was kind of that I was raised to, I was trained to fear. It scared me. The, the sort of, the, the purple vein in the big beefy white man's neck as he screams at me. It has happened to me as a child. Yeah, I know that expression so well. You know, I, I mm. The topic, so, you know, what are you doing and why are you listening to me and why are we here together and why does anyone tune into this thing? I bump into people from time to time and I have this podcast and thank you for being part of it. We're going to go back to the content in a second, but this is a station announcement. And uh, I'm, in a, I'm at a spot where I've now, uh, my last few conversations were with folks who were giving me advice on how to do a podcast and make it better. And one of the big topics now on my mind is, what should it be called? 
I'm about to change the name because the original name, I received the feedback, polite, formative, world domination. Well, one of my first guests asked me, well, why are you doing a podcast and all I could come up with as well? Why not? Why not go big, go everywhere, make a big impact on everyone everywhere? Let's try that. Maybe some of the stories and ideas we hear will be, and then, you know, okay, fine, world domination. Not a great name. We've now whittled it down to two. The last person I was with, Rachel Jodes, who was formerly with the Wall Street Journal and Twitter, uh, had the idea that maybe it should be called In the Know. Since my company is called Notel, In the Know, maybe we spell it in a funny way. That was one option. Now, me, I was thinking F2F, founder to founder, face to face. And I pledged to Rachel that my next guest would finalize the decision. And so the pressure on you, Amy, is it can't be called world domination any longer. We need to move to a better place. And we have to choose in the know or F to F, founder to founder, face to face. In the know. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. She wins. Okay, fine. In the know. And how will we spell it? Uh, K-N-O... W-E. Oh. <laughs> okay, fine. The final spelling on the next episode. You'll have to tune back in. <laughs> and, you know, now having created these two, or been part of, or sort of getting swept up in, because I, I want more advice now on this podcast thing, right? I got a lot of nice ideas from Rachel and others about the editorial strategy of creating a podcast that people might like to listen to. I had a few requirements. It wasn't going to be massively planned and researched and scripted and all that. It was going to be more improvised. And she gave me a few tips. For example, one of my German colleagues, former journalist, said, well, you need better microphones. So here before you are my best effort at that, only $10 on Amazon. I'll post some of the details. And Rachel, who I think in past lives with you know, Twitter or Wall Street Journal, wherever she was, um, had the notion of editorial strategy. So improvised, yes, but following somehow a theme and building in a direction. Something about featuring people who made great things and how they did it and learning from that and maybe reusing that in my podcast itself. And you have made some great things and I think there are either ideas or memes or movements or whatever I don't know what do you think you've made and I'm, that's, I'm asking you're going to give me some tips about this ideas mm. I, I think I've made ideas mm-hmm. um, I mean I do have different media through which I share those ideas mm-hmm. I've made a book I've mm-hmm. made talks mm-hmm. but I really think I've made ideas mm-hmm. that uh, which people find um, useful and sort of comforting mm-hmm. um, and it allows them to, yeah, become more comfortable with their own sort of feelings of power, hmm. um, which people are generally afraid of. I mean, the word power is associated with so many negative things. If you mm-hmm. do it like a free association and say, power, power. what's the next word? What, what do you think comes up most often? Corrupts. Yep. yep. It's corrupt. Hmm. Corrupt or corruption. Hmm. What's interesting is that power does power itself does not corrupt. It interacts mm-hmm. with other variables that can lead to corruption mm-hmm. in certain societal conditions, certain personality types. But if we think power is bad, and, and especially if the, the powerless think power is bad, mm-hmm. then we're in trouble. Right? So women in particular really need to become more comfortable with the idea of feeling powerful because when mm-hmm. you feel powerful, it changes the way you feel and think and behave, it changes your physiology, mm-hmm. it activates what we call the behavioral approach system. So you generally see the world as a place that's filled not with threats, but with opportunities. Yeah. And you approach people and see them as potential allies and friends, not as predators or competitors. So it's so important to allow oneself to feel powerful that it, in, in some ways I think that's actually what people are hmm. responding to. It's, it's not really mm-hmm. power posing. They think that's what it is, but it's actually mm-hmm. just, a, it, it's, it's a way for them to enter into this space. The idea 
idea that you can change the situation of the world, I suppose. I mean, many have described it, but I think as Karl Marx said in the thesis on Feuerbach, the philosophers have only described the world. The point, however, is to change it. And perhaps the power of the idea that you're describing is, okay, we see this imbalance. We see what it inhibits. We see how badly our society is, is run as a result of it. Here are, let's find the ideas that let us change it, essentially is the search that you're on, yeah? Yes. But, in, but let's, let's, I, w- I want to ask about the genesis of the idea and how it developed. When, when did it, like, how did, how did you know and how did you manage it and how did you develop it and how did it get somewhere big? Because I have this other idea in my back pocket I want to try on you in a minute and I want to workshop it with you, but I want to ask you first about power. Okay. When did you notice that it was a big thing? Were you just hanging around some department meeting and thinking, oh, I have this half-baked paper and, oh, maybe it's interesting or there was a conversation with a colleague or, like, how, where does it start? <coughs> One um, was, was my noticing body language of female and male students at HBS in the classroom. So from business school students where participation is half your grade. And men, there was a, a significant gender grade gap. It's mm-hmm. now narrow significantly. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was largely because men were participating and women weren't. Now, there were all kinds of things that some of that was that women were not participating. Some of it was that women weren't getting called on. Yeah. <laughs> right, because you're supposed to interrupt, not raise your hand. But they don't know that, and it's not in the manual. Professors would go back to their office to you know, mark participation, and they forget the women's comments were not the men's comments. Oh, incredible. But one of the things was definitely that uh, women were were less assertive about getting in there. Mm-hmm. And their body language looked like the body language of Alan's out. And they were just all closed up. The guys who were participating come into the room early. They're taking up space in the middle of the room. Standing so in the middle, talking loudly across the whole place. Right. Mm. So the body language was so I have to say I'm guilty of that myself. Some of it is trained behavior for me. I had to learn how to work in a conference where we are now or in a business meeting with some intimidating older people. And I think you're describing some, some patterns. Yeah, yeah. and so, so I, I noticed that. Um, and I was really sort of, you know, I've studied sexism and racism for my academic career, always trying to figure out ways to, to narrow this gap, mm-hmm. uh, to reduce these things. And that grade gap really got me. Really, I, I was really thinking about that a lot. So then I noticed, I went into a meeting with this former FBI agent, Joe Navarro, who's also a body language expert. Mm-hmm. And he was sort of, he, <laughs> we were talking about body language, but he made me nervous. And I started to... Just the way nervous. you were in the meeting. Yeah, he's something crazy. about, like, the eye contact, he's something about the... Yeah, he's mm. just, he's, he, he wasn't afraid to ask difficult questions. I, mm-hmm. He's... Um, He's, he's pretty alpha, mm-hmm. and I can very much have mm-hmm. mm-hmm. really good friends. But mm-hmm. in that meeting, the first time I met him, I was, I was intimidated, and I started to do these ah. things with my body. Right, you were defending oh, yourself. Mm-hmm. This is what my students are doing. Uh-huh. And look what I'm doing right uh-huh. now. Oh, oh, oh. Uh-huh. Myself up. You know, I'm, I'm, um, I'm collapsing my shoulders. Right. All these things. Right. And you're face to face with an FBI interrogator, and oh. these young women are in an MBA class where they're meant to succeed. But who's also a body language expert? Mm. Who starts saying, "Why are you doing that? Why are you playing with your necklace? Mm-hmm. Why are you doing this?" But hmm. which made it worse. But he was trying to make a point. How amazing! You know, he, he said, "You're, you're acting intimidated. Like, uh. your, your body language is telling you that you're scared. What are you scared about?" Uh huh. And so then, so then what? Then it's research in a paper. Is that the next milestone? Like, if it were a startup, or if it was a, yeah, no, I don't know, a journalist, you'd like write an op-ed or something. Yeah. Research in a paper, and I. But the, the thing is, I I I had been studying for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, 
these two dimensions of social judgment, one of the mm-hmm. confidence, and mm-hmm. how, we, how we judge each other on these, and, mm-hmm. and, and why it is that we see people who are warm as less confident, and people who are confident hmm. as less warm. Hmm. And these things are seen as hydraulically related, mm-hmm. but not. So I had been doing a lot of work on that, and that work was getting quite a bit of attention. Um, and, and this was just sort of like secondary stuff I was doing. Uh, but it, it, it moved into um, more and more sort of interviews that I did. Mm-hmm. And eventually I was asked to give this talk at a small conference called Pop Tech. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know it. It's an important conference in a, in a certain community, like the sort of tech and innovation community. It's in Maine, isn't it? Pop Tech? It's in Maine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was great. I gave a version of this talk on power. So you had written a paper, though? I had written a paper. And a couple friends had seen it, or like it was published somewhere widely, or like what was its impact at that moment? Not Okay, so like a paper. I've written paper. I was in grad school. I wrote a paper. No one read it. That has happened to me. Yeah. But then you go to a, give a talk about yeah, it. Yeah, I gave that talk at PopTech, and then um, and then I was invited. Within a few days, I was invited uh-huh. to give a TED talk. So then, on the basis of that PopTech talk, which must have taken the whole room down, the TED people are like, "Ah, we've found someone. Let's bring her to the big stage." It, it did go uh-huh. well. And that was the first time I had given that kind of talk, and I uh-huh. also kind of loved it. Uh-huh. Like, this is fun. I like doing this. Uh-huh asked to give this TED Talk, and, you know, I talked a lot in the TED Talk about the experience of feeling like an imposter, uh-huh. and that really, that really touched Connected me. with people, right, so right, people. right. And the minute I left that room, someone came up to me, and it's like a Swiss banker, and it was a <laughs> guy who was like, you would never guess this, in a perfect suit. Mm-hmm. I feel like an imposter every day in my Wow. And I thought, wow, like, this is, this is huh. not the person I... Yes, Could it be that you are connected with the popularization of that term as well, imposter syndrome? Do you think? I, do you think so, or were you surfing that one? I'm so nervous to say that, but, but you think that was one of the key moments in the culture I, that I, suddenly I, everyone's I, talking I, about imposters? Yeah. yeah, it's got to be. That's I the. I mean, but everyone's been. been mm-hmm. Well, the idea has existed for some time, but it has caught fire in the last few years. Yeah. I mean, these things happen to us, right? Like, you do something, suddenly everything's moving. Presumably, it wasn't your plan walking in to use this word and have the Swiss banker come up. Now it's happened, let's say. Okay, and now I'm drawing an analogy to a friend uh, who's a researcher at Columbia Business School. Her name is Donna Counts, and she did a piece of research about venture, and she... Re- studied the recordings of many hundreds of, of women and men who were pitching this Tech Crunch Disrupt conference and analyzed the kinds of questions, the kind of words. She came up with this thing about the offense and defense type of questions and answers that people face. Women face a lot of defense type questions and they give defense type answers and the men are all bigger market go giant. But she had a moment, not quite this, this moment that you had coming off stage. I presume it was at the Vancouver, the Long Beach TED. It's like the headquarters of the universe. Ah, right, okay. And so... You come off and you know something has happened. And for Donna, she had the HBR pieces. Everyone has seen this thing. And you may or may not have heard of this. Is there a next move? Is there like, what's the strategy then? Did you have one? Or what would you do this time? Yeah, I mean, hmm. I, first, you don't even know if your TED talk will be posted. Hmm. So I just waiting around to see if I post it. And it was months later. So this June, I gave a talk in June. And I posted it in October. Mm-hmm. I was shocked by the response. Mm-hmm. Um, you just you give a TED talk and hope it gets posted and maybe right. a couple hundred thousand. Right, people. right. And you can send it to your colleagues like, hey, a hundred thousand. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I mean, I just I felt like hiding under my bed at first. I was, wow. I could not believe the 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 sort of intimacy of the emails that I was getting. Mm. People from every walk of life, little like mm-hmm. kids. You know, I think on the first day I got an email from like a 15 year old girl in China, mainland China, who was trying to learn to speak English. Wow. I got an email from a World War II veteran who was 
feeling um, powerless and afraid to ask his doctors for more information. Wow. But uh, I, I was hearing from a first-generation Latina college student at UCLA who said, I, I was going to drop out this week, but now I'm not going to. That's amazing. So that was all in the first hour. Mm-hmm. I just, I was shocked. I, I didn't want to leave the house. I finally did with my friend. And almost immediately, someone came up and said, thank you so much for your talk. And I said nothing. Mm-hmm. And my friend sort of like punched me in the leg. She said, Wow. People would come up and say, can I give you a hug? Yeah. And just be quiet. That's you know, and, and so I didn't know what I was going. Mm-hmm. My son was like, he was maybe nine. Mm-hmm. He hated the attention. The level of, yeah. Like, Sharing. Yes, it was because it wasn't just people recognizing it. it was people they come and sit down at the table. Yeah. That story right. And crying. Yeah, and wow. So I, there was this weird intimacy with strangers. Mm. Um, I had no idea. And I, 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 I did really nothing. Mm-hmm. I, didn't, I didn't make any moves. I had, you know, loads of people asking me. Asking publishers and, and book agents asking me to write a book. Uh-huh. I, I just I, I mean, of course, none you, of them. I oh. just put them in this folder. Wow. Um, I must have had I don't know seventy or something like that. Yeah. Which is then I thought just the way it works and it's not the way no. it works. Um, and I decided that I wouldn't write a book until I had I knew I had something new to say and, hmm. and the book really became um, a response to all of these strangers who contacted me oh. and figuring out what they needed mm-hmm. and where they needed to feel safe mm-hmm. and what they could do for them. So the door opened by the talk into their minds and hearts. Where would where would you travel through that door to? What can you you that you, you felt some obligation to deliver more I than the long version of the ten minute talk. I yeah. Did. I mean they yeah. were telling me their their greatest fears mm. and their most challenging moments in their lives and and about the sort of sense of regret that they felt when they left mm-hmm. them feeling unseen, like they hadn't done everything they could do to really mm-hmm. show up. Um, so yeah. Well, this sounds like the makings of a media and intellectual empire. <laughs> there are people who write the same book with minor variations for an entire career. I won't venture to name any names because perhaps it's not so polite to do so, but you could build a whole franchise around the idea of empowerment or power or, or whatever it was and explore all the different pockets of that idea. There could be a talk show with you and a documentary about the stories of the people who were touched by the video. There could be all kinds of stuff, and presumably people have pitched all this to you. What is your frame? And now I'm asking you as the, the founder of, or the creator of a meme or an idea or a project, and I know this isn't your mindset, so I'm putting you in a startup founder's seat when in fact this is not what you do. But given that fluorescence and that moment, that huge power and impact, where would it go next? Where could it go next? Should it have gone anywhere next? Is that a project that now has more chapters and direction? Um, let's see. I, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm not good at answering this question. I, I, didn't, I don't want to be an evangelist. Mm-hmm. I don't want it to be an idea that I own. I want, mm-hmm. I want people to feel like they're entitled to it, mm-hmm. to have it, and do mm-hmm. whatever they want with it. Um, and, and it's not just an idea, right? There's, mm-hmm. there's, it, it just opened up this whole new kind of world mm-hmm. um, where I was able to connect with people outside of academia. Mm-hmm. And that made me much more interested in the world outside of academia. So mm. I have basically left academia. I mean, I, I do teach mm-hmm. still occasionally. But you have a very public role. But I, I, I prefer speaking and writing. 
Amazing. Um, I don't know if I want to be limited. Like, I, I, you know, people ask about personal brand stuff all the time. Uh, I don't know. I, hmm. I, I don't know. I don't know what to do with that. I don't know if I want to. I quit academia the first week I got to my PhD program and decided that I wouldn't carry on. I, I actually, I think I, I sort of mailed it in, but I sort of knew it wasn't right for me, and then I moved on to being a startup founder, and it gives me, I guess, the opportunity to ask people like you things about how you've done the things that that you that you will do in the future and I want to now try this idea I heard about this morning from the colleague who was sitting next to me on stage Nora uh, Abustit whose company is called Craft Jam I heard a word I've never heard this word before this word is amazing and I think this word has great possibilities I think this word the word is femtrification the word femtrification I think this word lands on my ears in a world that's ready to change or that must change, and that maybe not everyone believes, but hasn't fully processed how that will impact all the highways and byways of the, the, of the cities and streets and world around us. And when I, I think, bounced this word off you a few minutes back, you thought, oh, yeah, 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 it's just we're going to be not, you know, more balanced and more civil in how we deal with each other. And I was thinking, actually, no, it's way more than that. It's like how you pay for the pizza. It's the type of road that you pave. It's the structure of the buildings and how many bathrooms there are and how do you start a meeting, how do you finish it. It's just every feature. The way gentrification is a mysterious and complex process of change for communities and people and real estate and whatever. Perhaps femtrification, with women increasingly in the driver's seat, and men responding, and perhaps participating and championing change as well. What could it mean? And if it's a meme, actually, if it could be a meme, how could we, where, where would we take it? Uh, I, mean, I, I like the idea of, of just a, a more uh, feminine style, hmm. human interaction. Mm-hmm. Becoming more normative, right? So, so mm-hmm. that, that seems like one of those new tips. Mm-hmm. Um, but let me just give, give you something that, that might seem shocking, but it, it, it seems consistent with this. Um, there's an author named Winston Martin mm-hmm. who just came out with a book called Untrue. Untrue. Yes, and it is about all of these untruths about the differences between men and women. Okay. And she is basically making the argument, she's incredibly smart, um, she's making the argument that the sex research was all driven by men, and so all these beliefs that Designed to validate the biases brought by men to the, and the power dynamic. Mm. And fidelity, all these ideas, mm-hmm. even the words that we use to, to describe things, mm-hmm. um, it, it's not that, it's, well, it's not necessarily that it was meant to control women, Hmm. It was more that men were doing the research, and that's what yeah. we were asking questions about. And so that's why, and I, I, I'm not sure how broad the audience is going to see. Mm-hmm. And actually, this is not a bad word, so I'm just going to say it. Women don't even know what the pictures <laughs> what the anatomy of the pictures are. The pictures are forbidden. Women have ounce for ounce as much erectile tissue as men. I didn't know. I just did a Q&A with a with 100 women, mm-hmm. and four women knew that, and the rest of them were on the edges of their seats, like, I knew nothing. Unbelievable. Right, so, that, I, I, it's not a small thing, it's a mm-hmm. huge idea, mm-hmm. idea that what, what we believe to be true is largely shaped by who was asking the question. Yeah, the fabric of reality itself is essentially your point, and, and, and all the buildings they built and all the networks that were networked animated that, that exact same, same way. Right, so I, Incredible. I, I, that's what I was thinking mm-hmm. when I used that word. Yeah. Femtrification. Femtrification. Hmm. I wonder... I didn't scare off any of <laughs> I'm not scared. I did the with her. Mm-hmm. because I'm like the least comfortable person talking about uh. 
And I thought mm-hmm. it would be great because, you know, I don't want her book to scare readers away. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking that she's trying to force change on me, but she's not. She's just saying, you just don't know anything about this because mm-hmm. knowledge didn't exist. And now there are all these female sex researchers, so now it does. But, um, yeah, I think... So women at the table, they get to ask questions, they get to find answers, they get to be the engineers and the designers and the planners and the CEOs, and then suddenly things change. And we don't know how. Not yet. And that, that, that perhaps is the process of femtrification. I mean, it is changing, right? Mm. And, and I'm hoping that, you know, this is, and this is, sorry, another one of Wednesday's ideas, but that what's happening right now that seems so awful mm-hmm. might be like, you know, a star dying, and it's that mm-hmm. last sort of burst before it dies. It could years. be. Yeah, the resistance. And let's hope so. Yeah, and actually, so my compliments and my appreciation very much for the radical optimism of your work. It's a very optimistic kind of work. It's about making change in the world. I'm but I'll stick with it. And thank you for the name of my podcast, which can finally... See, I can make huge decisions like buying a car or something, but now I'm having... In the know. In the know. Thank you, Amy Cuddy. You're welcome, thanks. She